I'm Adam Spencer, and in our sixth episode of Challenge Chats, I'm joined by Joanne Matthews, founder of 10 Health and Fitness. In this chat, we touch on the origins of 10 as a result of an unfortunate but ultimately happy accident, Joe's fundraising journey and how it's made her a more effective leader, and a deep dive into the current state of the fitness and wellness sector. So dial up the volume, kick back and enjoy. So it's without further ado that I'd like to introduce today's guest, the amazing Joanne Matthews. Joe is the founder and CEO of 10 Health and Fitness, a wellness business that bridges the gap between the medical community and fitness markets. 10 was instrumental in pioneering the London boutique fitness sector back when it launched in 2007. It's since grown into the UK's largest provider of dynamic reformer Pilates, I think traditional Pilates, but taken to the next level, and has a fast growing clinical led wellness offering. Pre-pandemic, upwards of 5,000 people visited its sites each week. They've now launched a live stream and on-demand fitness and wellness platform, and in 2019, raised equity capital from four sites to drive their expansion. Much more on all of this later, but firstly, Joe, welcome to Challenger Chats. Thank you, Adam, and it's great to be here. It's really good to finally have you on the show, and it's been a, been a long time in the making. But as our regular listeners will know, I do love myself a good founder origin story. And Joe, I think you have one of the best. Uh, But before we dive into that um, and the happy accident, can you tell me a bit more about your background and what you were doing before you joined the Founders Club? So my career before 10 was in marketing and PR. I worked both agency side on brands like Marks & Spencer, Tesco's and Gillette, and ended up client side as head of marketing and PR for Habitat and Austin Reed. So in essence, everything retail and, and events focused very consumer centric, but it was always about the brand. Let's dive into this story then. What gave you the inspiration for 10? Well, I established 10 in 2007 as a result of a car crash, uh, something that I have come to think of as a happy accident. Uh, It didn't feel very happy at the time, but it turned out to be uh, genuinely and positively life changing. So we were returning home from a party and in the early hours of Sunday morning, on the North Circular, a young lady decided to ignore the no right turn, the no U-turn sign and the red light and crash into the side of our car. So I fractured my coccyx, rotated my pelvis and had a lot of soft tissue damage. And it was really out of this incident that the idea of 10 was born. Um, I suppose during my recovery, which was quite lengthy, I identified a few things. So one, that the people who should be helping me get better my consultants, my doctors, my physios, my rehab specialists didn't, uh, specifically because they weren't talking to each other. So it made my getting back to being mobile and you know probably active again much longer than it should have been. Uh, working with the rehab specialist, I was introduced to the reformer and discovered it was a great piece of exercise equipment for rehab or for functional exercise. And also it was a time where people were particularly fed up with gyms and paying gym memberships and not getting much back in return. Their lives were more dynamic, uh, more flexible, but the gym model wasn't. Um, So I identified there was a gap in the UK market. There was a need for somebody to bridge this gap between the medical community and the generic fitness market. And someone who could deliver joined up clinical care alongside a sustainable, functional and fun exercise offering. And I suppose this was really how the idea of 10 was born. Um, it was a happy accident. And, you know, 
it's it's made that statement's made its way into our brand book at 10 and yeah it was life-changing on many levels for sure and it's inspirational to see a devastating accident like that actually result in something that's uh, you know life-changing and positive and 10 coming out of it so when you were thinking about the early evolution of 10 what it was going to be what you were going to deliver to market did you see it as a dynamic reformer pilates studio or were you thinking i need to come up with an idea to help people who found themselves in the same situation as me as in not having a, a joined up approach to your clinical rehabilitation so i had a grand plan um i was all in for this really big wellness center offering um that as you said something that could offer end-to-end care to help people who had experience like me it was also to take the opportunity to bring Pilates out of that kind of the church hall and make it more mainstream like yoga had become. So I, I saw the concept and it was fantastic marketing plan that was taken to the bank, um, if I say so myself. And it was basically, they it was a no. Everybody said no because they didn't understand what I was trying to do. I was trying to do a pay-as-you-go model for fitness. I was trying to join up a medical into the fitness environment. There was no benchmark. There was nobody that had done it before. I had no track record um, and I, I wasn't coming with sort of institutional investment at this time. So I think the best bit of advice I got, I was actually from the, from the final bank that said no, was prove a concept, take an element of this, of your plan, back it yourself and demonstrate that it can work and then come back. Because then we'll understand what you're trying to do. But at the moment, it's an absolute no. You're asking for way too much money on, on, on something we don't really understand. So I, I knew I wanted to do something. I knew I had to start somewhere. We literally went and looked at different locations and tried to work out how much we're going to cost and all this sort of stuff. And in the end, I just took a site that uh, we could afford in uh, Notting Hill, and we opened, I think it was in August 2007. We had 10 reformers. We had all the uh, stuff from my lounge as our reception. I had desks and stuff. Everything was taken from home. We had three trainers. I was on reception and we opened our doors. And, you know, we offered done out reformer Pilates. We thought we'd start with a class format. It's new. It's innovative. We'd kind of seen what Legree had been doing over in the States. And we thought, yeah, we can do that here. It makes sense, and it's and it's part of the building block of what ten will become. Um, so we had dynamic form of Pilates, personal training, me on reception, and we broke even in four months. So it, it was it was great. It was it was um, you know all I I kind of had to go all in, and I thought well, the the risk that I'm going to take is um, just lose the investment that I put in, and I was quite comfortable with that because that's the worst that could have happened. And with all of those people, you know, the, the corporate suits telling you, no, this can't be done in its current form. Did, did you find that demotivating? Were there any times where you would, came close to throwing in the towel? I thought they were wrong. I had a point to prove and I'd committed to this. And I also thought, I actually thought it was an authentic story. I, I'd experienced it and lived it myself. I knew there was a customer base out there. I knew that the tide was turning against gyms, all the research I had done. And I knew Pilates was very, very niche. So I thought, if anything, I'm going to have a competitive advantage because this is new. Um, and whilst it's harder to convince people to invest in you, if it's new and exciting and certainly kicking off in Notting Hill where you've got 
you know, some real trailblazers for clients. You know, a lot of the the media, the the models, they were all coming, and that's a really good way to to start a business to to get that leverage. And also with a marketing background, I knew at least I could market the idea. And if it was going to stick, then you know, the, and the clients would come, then I I thought we we had a very good chance of delivering. Did you find that having that, I guess, more larger corporate background helped in that respect in terms of understanding the, the opportunity? Or it's quite a step going from a corporate, more institutional career to all of a sudden, you've got the site in front of you and you need to fit it out and you need to hire for it. How was that kind of transition from corporate life to, to entrepreneurship? The advantage for me is I'm a generalist and not a specialist. Um, whilst my background is marketing, PR, um, I'm incredibly curious about things and how things happen and, and putting things together. So I knew from a skill set point of view that I could bring a business mind, planning, um, planning management, people, kind of the, the some of the fundamentals, really, when you're trying to grow a business. I had that experience. I didn't have the fitness experience, but I knew I could go out and find people. I didn't have the physio experience, but I knew there were experts out there that that's what they did. Um, and I think because I didn't have that, we were able to build something intent that is not um, a traditional fitness or physio practice. It's actually come out of a brand and a concept um, that we could then work out what we wanted to look and feel like rather than kind of, I'm a clinician and this is what clinicians do, or I'm a trainer and this is what trainers do. We, we were able to create something I think is bigger than the individual services it's um, having conviction on the gap in the market knowing what you're good at and what skills that you need to hire for and, and bring in it feels like that opening went as well as it could <laughs> um you mentioned the kind of you know the clientele i think the location absolutely fitted the market at that time i'd like to segue a little bit into what it was like starting out as a as a female entrepreneur did you notice any any barriers that didn't seem to be there for your male counterparts or or any challenges that that surprised you in, in the kind of early days? I think I was more aware of my gender being a barrier in my previous life uh, than when I started my own business. I think I was so focused. I was really excited and determined to build the business. I didn't feel that my gender was holding me back. Um, I think when I was in the corporate environment, it was really clear that I was kind of hitting a bit of a glass ceiling. Um, we are talking sort of 15 years ago, so it, it was definitely more evident then. And definitely the, the pay that my male counterparts were getting was significantly higher than I was getting. So I, I think I felt it more in that, in that the corporate environment. Um, certainly one of the motivators for doing it on my own was not to have that environment anymore. Um, and I think that if you've got, something that's really authentic you know with us with 10 it's kind of an authentic idea it's demand led it's innovative then it shouldn't be about the gender it should really be about the idea and I think if if people can't see that then they're going to miss loads of opportunities because there's loads of great ideas out there for sure and do you think that there are barriers now that exist for for female entrepreneurs or do you or do you think you know Times have certainly changed. I think, you know, the, the environment is certainly, as you say, more colorblind, less gender blind. Are there still challenges now? Or do you feel like, you know, the path is now is relatively clear for entrepreneurs of all shapes and sizes to open up their businesses? I think some groups definitely have advantages. They have better networking, um, they have more access to the 
what I've called the traditional, the right type of people. Um, I think what I found specifically through the actual fundraise itself, that it was quite different. It was, um, there were very, very few women involved in the process or in the decision-making. And also when we were looking for a chair, chairman, uh, no women came forward. So I don't know if we're quite difficult sector, but also um, that was evident. There was lack of, of women around. Um, and a fact I don't really like, but Adam, you might be able to tell me if it's true or not. So when a man is pitching for money versus a woman, the man will always achieve a higher investment. That was something I learned on my investment round. I don't know if it's true anymore. That's a difficult one to answer without access to a lot, to a lot, a lot of data on a lot of deals. Um, certainly not something that I've seen in in my journey. I think you're you're right. It comes down to having the right idea, having the right concept, and being able to sell in the right way. A lot of the people that we have worked with in the past, uh, male and female, the one thing they they have in common have been they've been amazing storytellers, and I think that certainly is a, is a fantastic hook, but also the underlying businesses um once you get into into the weeds of going into the detail on on an investment opportunity obviously the person at the at the front of that kind of you telling that story is crucial and critical i can't claim to have seen any any sort of difference between whether it's a it's a male or a female telling that story and delivering those messages so it's hard for me to know it's that's not an anecdotal fact that i've come across before so i i will i will look into that myself and come back to you joe on that and if, if there is i think there's something we need to do about it yeah absolutely and i do think there is there's lots of interesting groups out there certainly kind of instagram like something called future females which is like 30 plus women really championing what they're doing um and I, th- I think that's great and I think it is just about women or men finding their voice and finding as you said their story that authentic story and and finding a way of, of saying and of telling it which is um you know makes it compelling for an investor to go actually I really get this I get they're passionate about what they're doing and and actually it's credible and the, the numbers you know ultimately the numbers stack up behind what they're saying there is a market opportunity i agree with you when when you said that you know during your your investment round which we'll we'll come on to later on there is a noticeable and evidenced gender gap in terms of um you know visibility of um, females in private equity in particular and and i think that that is changing but certainly that is something that the industry has to address. I think it's not it's not where it needs to be right now. I think it's heading in the right direction. But and there are some some fantastic female deal doers that, that we know and have worked with. But you're absolutely right. There are in terms of the people that you met and were introduced to. Um, I don't think there were many females in in, in that mix. So going going back to the business a little bit. Uh, I mean, I'm always interested to know, particularly with someone from a branding background, you must have agonized over the choice of name. So why 10? Why 10? I knew I wanted an iconic brand. I, you know, I wanted a name that would be quickly um, become a signifier rather than a descriptor. So if you think about Nike, Audi, Apple, rather than Bootcamp, Pilates or Cycle, it, it, it just had to be resonate immediately. So it was it, really important that the name was memorable and it wouldn't be confused with anyone else. And also, it wouldn't uh, limit where we could take the brand in the future. So with 10, it's such a positive number, and it allows for positive reinforcement and encouragement. We all understand understand 10 out of 10, the perfect 10. 
And it's also interesting to have the, the have this discussion with clients to say why we got ten. You know, so it's it's a real it's a real um, it's a very positive name. And also today, nobody's got our name wrong, so we've never been called eleven or seventeen. <laughs> um, and I also love the Peacock logo because it's really easily recognisable. So we're kind of fourteen years in, and London has really recognised the logo. And now knows it's ten, even though our company name is Ten Health and Fitness. So I kind of I, I I believe I've achieved what I wanted to do. That's something that resonates, that can be used in shorthand, um, and that's easily recognisable. And as Quirk of Fate, you've you've now have I think it's at last count ten sites open. Yes. With a new site, post-COVID site opening up in in Notting Hill Gate, pretty close to where where it all started. How did it feel opening up just down the road from site number one? Super, super exciting, completely appropriate. We were closing the circle. We were opening 10's 10th studio in the same area where we opened our first. And to be opening um, a second studio in Notting Hill area just really does represent a milestone in our evolution. And I think especially as everything the industry and everyone has been through in the last 18 months to be able to open on the 19th of May it was just it was really galvanized us as a team because we had something so positive to take out of something that had been so negative it just proves that we were able to offer continuity to our clients and also to kind of leverage the fact that we are meant to be growing but the two years we've had out has really restricted that so it it just it just helped be helped us be really optimistic and like yeah we've come home we've done everything we said we'd do we've got you know, we've done, we've got all the service lines in that we wanted to, that was on the business plan back in 2007. You know, it's a full circle story and it just felt like a really important time to be able to do it. In terms of where you are with the business now, so I guess the business has kind of evolved and feels a lot more like the original business plan does. So you started off in class-based fitness, um, specialised in dynamic reform of Pilates, your offering is now much, much broader. Can you give us a flavour as to what 10 provides now? The original vision for 10 was to bridge the gap between the medical community and the generic fitness market. And in order to do that, we needed to provide the services that represent that. So we've introduced at differing stages through the last 14 years, different services. So we started, as you said, with DRP, um, personal training. Uh, We introduced physiotherapy and massage. And then back in 2018, we completed the circle by introducing specialist clinical prescriptive exercise. So these, this is exercise for clients who have been, had life altering clinical diagnoses. So if you, if you think somebody's got a cardiac issue, diabetes, cancer, more recently we've looked, we're working with people with Parkinson's and now we're, we're working with people with long COVID. And why we can do this is that we can offer exercise to these cohorts, to these group of people, because they really, really need it. So we even work with people going through their chemo, the different stages of chemotherapy, um, the chemo treatment, so that um, they can maintain energy, they can exercise, because we know that if you exercise before an intervention and you exercise post it that you're actually going to be better for doing that and there's a lot of evidence that uh, backs this up so 
we've started this part of our business and it's growing from strength to strength and it's part of what we call our circle of care. So clients can come to us for, I don't know, you want to see your abs again after you've been kind of, after your COVID lockdown. So you want to do fitness or you've hurt your knee and so you need to see a physio or you've been diagnosed with breast cancer and you're going to have surgery but you want to make sure that when you've had the surgery that you can get back to exercise and normal life as quickly as possible. So all these disciplines now work under one roof and they don't operate in silos. So a client can come in. So take me, for example, I damaged my back, lots of soft tissue damage. Um, so I would, I would go in for physio, I'd have massage, I'd then have personal training and late stage rehab. And then when I was fit enough, I would go into the classes. So I would utilize all aspects of our services. While some clients will come in and just come in because they want fitness and they'll do dynamic form of Pilates or they'll do personal training. So I think, I think what we've managed to achieve is have the services that truly do bridge the gap between the medical community. Because we work with a lot of consultants and referrals and hospitals through to the fitness industry where people, as I said, just come in because they want to have a really fun, dynamic workout um, and they're going to have brunch with their friends. So, yeah, we've kind of managed in this this period, certainly from 20, 2018, to have the original vision come to life, which has been kind of really rewarding. That's what I, I absolutely love about your business is that the, the, the multiple entry points for a, for a customer, as you say, someone who loves DRP trying you out or someone referred to by their GP, someone who tweaked a muscle wants to see a physio. Um, you, know, you have lots of uh, lots of potential, you know, your catchment for, for potential customers is potentially huge. But I imagine that operationally having that joined up approach throughout the disciplines is quite a is quite a challenge. As you say, it's not something that you know has really been done before. So how do you manage that operationally within the business when there are potentially many, many different routes that a that a customer could take as a journey throughout the different disciplines? Yeah, absolutely. I mean the two things that are really complicated, one is simplifying what is quite complex complex and integrated product offering so that it it makes sense to the people working within it and the clients understand it but also how you then talk about it to to through your communication through your marketing so yeah that has i don't think we've 100% cracked it but it, it's definitely that the hardest part i think the the easy bit in terms of the clients self select why they come to 10 so they either come for exercise or physio and at that stage, it's up to the staff internally to identify what else might be relevant for that client. So a physio will work with a client and then, then get towards the end of the treatment and say, okay, you do need some further sort of um, late stage rehab. The options are you can do this or if you feel confident, we can put you in some classes because one of the physios you know already is teaching those classes so you can go into that class. And that becomes about the staff on the ground identifying opportunities that can further add value to a client's experience. The other thing we have is software. Uh, we work on a, a platform that everybody's data is held centrally. So it doesn't matter which studio you go to, which a product you're using, the, the clinician, the front of house, the trainer can access and say, okay, so you... You've been seeing this person for this, this, and this. 
And we also encouraged, I'm saying encourage, but expect the staff to refer on internally. So if they're referring on internally, they need to do that sort of face-to-face and say, I'm seeing this client and this is what's going on and this is what you need to be aware of if you've got her in a class or him in a class. So I think it's trying to break down teams working in silos and then adding that complexity of, and then they work multi-site. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it is iterative and it is work in progress, but I think we're a lot better at it, um, certainly than we were when we started. And it was also something that drove the, the fact that we employ most of our staff rather than freelance them. Because if you've got the freelance culture, I really felt it was less easy to embed collaboration, cohesive brand values, that sort of thing. So, so yeah, it, it, it is um, interesting. How do you measure customer outcomes then or, or your, your kind of patient outcomes when you have different touch points, um, different people individually dealing with, with a customer? Is that something you do track or do you just, you know, do you look at measures like engagement or repeat visits to, to see whether, you know, a customer is having a good journey experience with, with 10? From a clinical perspective, for the physios and clinical team, there's very set outcome measures that need to be delivered, especially if we're working with insurance companies. So we have requirements that we have to sign up to and deliver. So there's industry standards. Then from the trainers, we um, they set goals for clients. And for the reformer classes, we measure occupancy. And across the board, we measure retention, first-timer conversion. And we also have NPS scores. So we're currently running at 92% for the company NPS score. So we use that really actively for feedback because it's the best thing to take back to to, to the teams because it's you know this is the good and the bad so um it's a really important part of what we do in terms of the the evolution in the uh, in the service offering so um you know, moving from your drp dynamic reform pilates class-based fitness specialist to a brand with, with multiple kind of wellness strings to the bow how has that translated to 10 as a brand and customer expectations of the brand so, you know, if someone has joined 10, you know, 12 years ago as a, as a DRP client, do they still kind of resonate with where the brand is now? Or have you kind of worked to change what people think of when they think of 10? I think we very much are delivering what we set out to deliver originally. We have three values, which is expert, celebratory and people driven. And I think that has really been our kind of guiding star really or those values have been our guiding star because it always comes back to how we're behaving are we making people feel good about themselves are we delivering in an expert way are we upbeat optimistic um do we celebrate their successes are we customer centric do we put our colleagues first all that sort of stuff is is just who we are in our dna and i think that has allowed consistency across all the service lines. We also very clearly didn't want to be like another medical practice. So when clients come to us who say uh, have breast cancer um, or cardiac issues, they don't come to 10 expecting to see a you know, very medical environment. And it, it, they come into a lifestyle consumer business. 
and they're treated exactly the same as everybody else around them. And I think that's that's really important for us because we want to be accessible, we want to be welcoming. And I think if we try to be different things to different people, then it's going to be really hard because our environments aren't huge. And you, it, I just don't think it works. I just think we have to have one tone of voice, one approach. And I think people will, will get it. I think people get that we're educate, educative, that we're about movements, getting people to move better. We're about, you know, um, we call it exercise for grown-ups, but it's more than that. It's kind of we're, we're kind of an intelligent approach to your well-being. And I think that's what keeps people coming back. And I think the other thing is because our business is kind of categorized into two areas, so it's needs-driven or wants-driven. So I've twisted my knee, I need to see a physio, or I want to be able to see my abs again. The needs-based clients, um, they can go and see the physio and then move through to kind of late-stage rehab or into classes. And, and that experience has to be the same because they, they need to understand that they have a good experience with the physio. It's got to be a good experience in the classes. And then the once-based clients, our job is to, you know, we're pay-as-you-go. So every interaction has to be good from the welcome, from the can I book you in for next week to how was your holiday and knowing their names. Um, because if they then hurt themselves, we can say, well, okay, now go and go and see the physios. And if they understand the quality of what we deliver in our classes will translate to going and seeing a physio, then it de-risks it. But it also, why wouldn't they? Um, so I think, I think that's really important for us is that we offer a consistency across the different services delivered in a way that that gives a client, it's very client-centric, but also gives the client a great experience and they build trust and they understand what they're going to get from us and it makes sense for them. In an increasingly competitive market, how are you kind of approaching the pricing topic at the moment? Oh, um, well, price is always a sensitive subject and there is definitely price sensitivity in the fitness market. And I mean, I, I just talk about it at the moment as a race to the bottom it's just so much for free. You've got aggregators like ClassPass. I mean, I, I just, you know, for the service that people expect in a boutique fitness environment and the prices that are being charged, I, I worry for the sector in that respect. From TEN's perspective, we have to be profitable. We only have 10 people maximum in the class, so we don't ever get 50 or 60 people in the class. And we also need to be really confident of the experience that we're offering and also explain, as I said, we're very educative um, and curious about people. So if we explain what we do and why we do it, and if that resonates well with the clients, they, they will then see the value that they're getting from us and not simply the price. And, and we just have to be like that. We have to go, we're really good at what we do. We invest in our staff. They're on continual training through CPDs and external courses to make them the best at what they they do and and to make us the best in London and that does need to be recognized and that does come at a price do you think in in the longer term you'll steer further and further away from being a, a 
fitness business into into more of a kind of your wellness business will the fitness moniker you know start to come with some baggage in terms of that race to the bottom that you talked about i'm going to avoid that because i think we're a movement business which is expressed through fitness prescriptive exercise personal training and physio so all our services in one way or another will help help you move better and i think this truly differentiates us from a you know, a Soul Cycle or a Barry's. You know, we, we're not that experienced, so typically not comparing like for like. And I think that we are about your fitness and wellness journey. And I think so. So, so I think we're bigger than a, a single genre provider, which makes us more interesting in a way. We'll move on a little bit then to talk about the investment round. So you and I actually worked together a couple of years back when you were seeking new investment into the business. Um, you ended up doing a deal with um, a VCT fund called Foresight. It'd be interesting to hear how you found the whole fundraising process. And I'd be interested to know if there were any bits at all that you that you enjoyed or that you thought added value to the business going forward. So I actually enjoyed the opportunity of communicating the vision of 10 uh, to a corporate audience and getting their feedback. Typically, we've been talking to ourselves and with our competition. So it was really interesting to get a wider, more commercial perspective. And as I said previously, I'm very curious. So I found that really interesting and the dynamics that happen and how you sell your story. It, It was, yeah, it was a very interesting experience I think the thing for me we are brand-led rather than finance first business so it was really never about the money and I think sometimes it was very clearly about the money for the people on the opposite side of the table so I had to balance that I like all this bit but they only like that bit so that that was a bit again having to get my head around that but having gone through the process I think it's helped us grow up as a business we're really on our numbers we're articulate uh, around them all our studios contribute there's lots of levers and pulleys that we've got now that that we can utilize across services and I think that discipline of you know somebody looking under the bonnet of your business be it you're going one year or for us it had been must have been nine years ten years was um you know reassuring because they actually thought we were good they actually thought there was something to invest in and in in a way it's nice to have that validation because you you think you've got a good business you think you've got a good product and that it could go from strength to strength so yeah if you're going to do it enjoy the process it it wasn't all bad it takes a long time (laughs) yeah (laughs) <laughs> um, I'm interested to know actually how, how your wider team reacted to you having bought on an institutional investor, I guess, you know, second tier management, your staff, did they see it as a, as a net positive for the business or was there some kind of you know, skepticism or pushback? I think everybody was super excited. We no longer had to grow organically. Uh, we were able before COVID to accelerate our growth. Um, and when you have a bunch of really competitive people, it's what they want. They want to see growth. They want to see their career development, they want to learn new things. So yeah, it, it's definitely positive. Do you think having that group or that person on, on the board has kind of changed you as a, as a CEO and as a leader? Um, personally, for me, it's been a good thing. 
I have been very challenged by it, but I think I'm better for it. I also put myself on a leadership course through Cranfield because I thought, you know, I, I haven't worked with anybody else for the last 10 years. So I think it's important for me to address that it's going to be different. It's important for me to be able to step up into a corporate arena again, but also to be able to bring my team with me. So, you know, you really are navigating different beasts. You've got an entrepreneurial, fun, energetic, dynamic team, all kind of keen to do lots. And then you've got a much more corporate, slow-paced, considered financial institute who does slow things down and you and as a as a CEO you have to to manage that and navigate that um it also enabled me to take 10 out of the middle league to be in the big league and I think you know hopefully with things to come we can demonstrate that we are going to get bigger and and have more impact and it's not necessarily all about scale but it's about having a credible impact in the London marketplace so I think that's going to be really important. It's a big change going from founder, as you say, you're, you're speaking in, internally and you're moving to reporting to to a fresh set of investors. Um, what was that first board meeting like? Well, actually, it's, it's been it's been fine as as much as you know trying to understand the dynamics and mechanics of a board. I think that's that's been really interesting. It's also making sure you have the right mix of people around the table that can be challenging but I think you've got to accept that robust debate is good as long as it's about making the business better and ultimately we're a group of grown-ups so we need to sort this out if there's any issues you need to be able to sort it out. What does your senior team look like now? They're the same roles different people we've had a really interesting time during COVID two of my senior team decided that you know the boomer 10 for literally 10 years and it was time for them to reassess think about their own lives their work-life balances what they're going to do with their families so we lost a couple of the senior team and also with through through even the next level down a lot of people reassessed and said actually I'm going to move out of London I'm going to go home we have have a lot of antipodeans um, in our business people from Canada we're, we're really multicultural um, and a lot of people went home so we had Brexit we had Covid and people took the time to to reassess and say actually I'm going to go and spend a few more years back home I might come back but yeah there was a lot of change there's absolute loads of change in the last two years. Have you found any roles particularly difficult to hire for in this in this climate? I'm really happy with the team I have at the moment I think the the role that's been traditionally difficult to hire for is the one we're actually still hiring for um, and that's an operations director's role um, it's it's this industry is is young the boutique fitness in, industry is young and if you're a big box gym operator moving from that into boutique fitness it's quite difficult you don't have the corporate infrastructure around you and the fitness industry unlike the physio or the clinical industry, doesn't train its staff well. They, they, they really do get, the trainers get left on their own a lot. So it's quite a young industry and also not that well, necessarily well trained or informed. So 
it's quite a hard role to to recruit for because you're working across so many services, multi-site, 10 studios, 10 different service lines. Um, it takes quite an operator to, to manage that. So currently, I'm COO. Consider this a, um, a call, call to action to anyone listening, uh, if they know any good uh, operations director candidates in mind, <laughs> send, send them our way. Finally, on the topic of people, your long-term partner, Justin Rogers, is also a, a key person in the business. Um, he's uh, been looking after a brand and in particular property. What's it like working alongside your partner? I debated whether I was going to answer this question. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> it's, it's been really good. No, I'm going I'm to be honest now. It's been really good to have someone I completely and utterly trust. So he has my back. And he does absolutely share the vision of 10. He helps establish the brand. Uh, he's a brand expert in his own right. Um, he joined the business a few years in. And in that respect, it's great to be on the same journey. He's a specialist. So he drives the rigor of the brand and the creative. He also, as you said, looks after property and runs a marketing and PR team, which is really difficult for him because my background is marketing and PR. A little bit of crossover. Can you effectively transition between work, work and home life um, and, and switch off when, when you need to and not, and not constantly debate every waking hour, uh, the marketing and, and branding side of the business? I think, I think that's really hard because, you know, we do, we do try to work separately all day. So he'll go to City, I'll go to Notting Hill Gate. We'll, we'll make sure that we're not in each other's space all the time. Um, but it's inevitable. You know, you come back and you'll say something, you'll mean not to say it, and it'll be eight o'clock to, oh, I wasn't going to talk about that, but I'm not going to see you tomorrow, so can we just talk about that? And then, you know, so so that's quite quite common. Um, and I think the, once you're having those kind of robust conversations at eight o'clock at night, and then you turn around and go, what do you want for dinner? It's kind of, you need a little bit more space than that. So, yeah, we've, we've learned to navigate it. We... It, it mostly works really, really well. Uh, my friends tease me. They say there's kind of, you know, there's that kind of boardroom, uh, boardroom to bedroom dilemma. So, you know, choose choose the evenings that you're going to talk about work. Um, uh, yeah, it's. I wouldn't do it without him, though. I think he's really contributed. So, Joe, we've reached that time that everyone's been waiting for. It is our quick fire round. I'm going to throw a few short, sharp questions at you, and you're going to give me some short, sharp answers back. Okay, you ready to go? Yep. Reformer or traditional Pilates? Reformer. Steak or tofu? Steak. Netflix or Kindle? Netflix. Okay, and, and what have you been watching recently? What, what's your last... Uh... I watched Call the Agent, which is a French series about a talent agency trying to hold it together after their CEO died. So so not quite Mad Men. <laughs> I think it's French. <laughs> a bit, bit more serious. <laughs> it was very good. Cocktail or superfood smoothie? Oh, cocktail. Glass half full or glass half empty? Half full. Instagram or TikTok? Definitely Instagram. And what's the lockdown habits that you can't wait to get rid of? I haven't got any to get rid of, but I've got a new one, which is I'm actually building time in for me, which has been a revelation. It's fantastic. Excellent. Well, you successfully navigated our quickfire round, Joe. As a treat for doing so, we're going to move on to talking about COVID <laughs> and the last 18 months. Um, so, so we're recording this in, in early August 
2021. Uh, the UK has now emerged from its third lockdown and almost all legal restrictions on trade have been dropped. So uh, are all of your, your sites reopened now? Yeah, so um, everything's open and I would love to say up and running, but there has definitely been a shift. Obviously, the even though we're open, I think consumer sentiment is still a bit concerned. The vaccine rollout is doing really, really well. We just hit the holiday season. Um, track and trace, that's a new thing that's causing so much chaos for the business at the moment. Uh, and we're daily having to navigate something else. And I think that, that that's been unique to this, this kind of full reopening. Um, they call it Freedom Day. It's just a really horrible day thing to call it. But it has, or we are in a, I call it the muddled middle. We're still not out of this by a long way. And I think the what it's meant for the businesses that are more residential sites have done, are doing really well. So the likes of Chiswick, Notting Hill, Notting Hill Gate, uh, Little Venice, before the flood, we had a flood. Um, so that's now shut for three months. But they, they were doing really, really well. And as you'd expect, the city, uh, places like Fitzrovia's and, and even through Mayfair and St. James's and Hatton Garden, they're a lot quieter because the work from home impact um, is seen, seen more there. So there's a kind of slower growth out of those spaces coupled with hitting summer and track and trace. And it's quite hard to put your hand on a, on a forecast, really. Alongside kind of geography, are there any customer types or demographics that are that are coming back sooner than others? Um, any obvious trends in terms of um, age, gender, you know, types of customer that are coming back? Our physio clients have been really consistent. We were able to operate our physio and clinical business throughout. So we've seen consistency there and they have come back more so since we've been formally open. The classes are just the ones that will take time, there just aren't the volume of people in London. And I, I hear it across all, all of our competitors are saying it, they're just not getting enough people. And I also think that some habits have been changed. So people are in very much in their routine, coming to, to you very regularly, but they've had sort of 18 months to learn new skills, to try different sports. So I think winners out of this are going to be Peloton. It's going to be kind of cycling, running, and I think to get people to give that up once they've kind of found out a way of fitting it into their, their daily life that isn't too interrupting will take some time for people to come back to classes. On the kind of you know digital side of things, you've also developed a, a digital channel or platform to, to reach your customers on the physio and the, and the class side. Tell us about that experience of kind of digitalizing the business. Um, you know, is it something that was kind of pulled together you know, as a reaction to COVID, um, or is it something that you've been you had been thinking about and are looking to invest in once once COVID is long in the distant memory? Um, I think we, out of necessity kind of pivoted we had to move all our services online so we were doing virtual first for physio and clinical products along with personal training and then we did live stream classes and then we thought well this taking a lot of effort to do this anyway and also people were looking for slightly different things as well so we looked at the on-demand market and we looked at what we could do and we we 
developed out our own sort of 10 on demand. And we also set up our retail as 10 boutiques. So, so we literally moved every service line digitally. And I think that, that that was really important for the community. We are not digital experts. We never set up to be digital experts. And I think we need to take a long, hard look at what that now means for us moving forward. Is it going to be part of the mix? I think it should be. But how much investment do you put into it? It's a completely different set of skills. It's a different team. It's different location. Um, so there's quite a lot of answers questions to be answered around that but I do think we should should be looking at being able to deliver something though we're up against such enormous competitors from the Apple Watch to Peloton to some very good individual fitness providers I mean Joe Wicks has gone you know viral and he's gone global but yeah so um, and there are quite a few influencer type fitness providers that have done really well out of this and, and some other brands as well. Um, so I think it's, it's a little bit difficult for us as we're a reformer-based fitness provider, but because of how we teach the educative side of what we do, I think there are opportunities for us that will just be a little bit more interesting. So it, yeah, it's work in progress at the moment. So what's kind of next on on the near-term radar for 10 uh, in terms of growth? Is it what does, what does the next couple of years look like for 10? Um, specifically, we still think there's more to play for in London. And I think that's, you know, looking at different geographies of areas we're definitely not in. And I think for us to enhance and some of our services so we can specialise in things like podiatry, um, there's other areas that we can bring into our services. And then I think we could look externally, you know, externally, we could look outside of London, but I'm really interested in, in what we can leverage in London. Again, we want to, we, we do want to stay with bricks and mortar. And I think there's more to play for. We just need the people to come back. And, and do you think mergers, acquisitions, kind of you know, consolidation in the sector is going to be kind of part of your growth story? We'd like to think so. I think, you know, we've had sort of 18 months, two years of pretty much standing still and our plans haven't gone away and our, you know, the money that we had investment from Foresight is, is, was there to do growth. And I think that, that has to be the end, end goal. If we can get quicker, get to those kind of targets quicker through acquisitions or mergers, I think that's absolutely both the fitness industry and the physio industry could do with some consolidation. I think there's some savings, cost savings kind of that could be done through that and also a lot of shared knowledge. And I think that's definitely an option. Other than another COVID variant, is there anything that keeps you awake at night? I'm an optimist and I really work well in a crisis. I'm, I'm actually, I, came into my own during the pandemic. I had so much to do. I was just so excited. It's like, oh, we can do this. We need to do that. So I, I definitely, I, I really like change, change management. So nothing really keeps me awake at night. Um, if something is on my mind, I kind of take it to bed with me and nine times out of 10, I wake up with a solution or a different perspective. And I also have a notebook by my bed. So if I kind of get up, I think, oh, I need to write that down. I will. But I don't, I don't agonize over anything. 
I think if, if we've done if we're doing the best that we can do and we're working on the controllables, stuff like COVID and you know, track and trace, it really is outside our of our control. And it's devastating and it's affecting businesses all over the place. And the main thing is it's expe- it's um impacting customers' experience. And I think that's what I've really noticed. There's people expect everything to be the same as it was pre-COVID, but not taking into consideration the fact that there's not enough people in, you know, staff in London, that everybody's trying to hire at the moment, both in hospitality and leisure, that, you know, you might have had a full staff set up for the morning, but by 7am they've called you and said, I've been pinged, I'm track and trace. You know, the railway service, Ocado, they can't, you know, everybody's been impacted. And I think it's just trying to find a way that we can be kind to each other going through this because it is really difficult. Absolutely. That's a lovely you know, to finish on in terms of COVID. Um, I've got one final question for you. And it's uh, when you sit back, when you're, when you're retired, looking out onto your front porch or, or across the bow of your yacht, um, how will you judge if you've had a successful career? So for me, it's, it's that the legacy of 10 lives on, that the people that have worked at 10 have had a, a really positive and enriching experience and learn new skills to take forward with them. I always say somebody should leave 10 better than they arrived. And I really believe that. I think we've seen so many of the team come and once they've left, they've started their own businesses. They've gone on to big jobs, uh, both in sort of Pilates or uh, physio businesses. And that our clients have felt really welcome. And again, that clients and staff are better for their experience of 10. Because I fundamentally know I'm better than my experience with Pam. Joe, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for uh, joining us on Challenger Chats. It's been a really interesting and, and inspirational chat, actually. So um, really appreciate your time. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Adam. It's been great. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to any of our channels, drop us a line, or follow Tamwheel Capital on LinkedIn, where you can carry on the conversation and engage on all things leisure, hospitality, wellness, consumer, and challenger. Thanks for listening.